tens of millions of families with Alzheimer's disease and dementia all over the world, including our family. We are Alls in the Fam. I'm Alan Fair. And I'm Polly Fair Noise. We're siblings, we are parents, but we're also caregivers. This is our podcast. This is our support group. Welcome to our family. Alzheimer's sucks, but this family lives, laughs, and learns as we fight for a cure. Welcome. Hey, Bonnie. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Alan. Hey, Alan. So welcome to Alls in the Fam. Polly uh, bought a car today, and the um, car buying ran long, so she wasn't able to make it, which is uh, too bad for her because in this episode, we had a really wonderful uh, guest, Del Potter, um, PhD from UC Berkeley, who specializes in psychedelic research on all sorts of ailments, including uh, depression, PTSD, and of course, uh, in our case, Alzheimer's. It was a really interesting interview, wasn't it? It's fascinating. And there's so much more happening in that science field than I ever imagined, even when we you sent us the original research, Alan. It's so promising and interesting. I agree. Just the idea that a brain with Alzheimer's might have some neuroplasticity left in it is really, really good to hear. Yeah, really great stuff. We're here with Del Potter and Del has a PhD in medical anthropology from UC Berkeley and then specializing in ethnopsychopharmacology. And I, I practiced pronouncing that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the chemistry and extraction of psychoactive indigenous plants and the cultural significance. So Dal, can you explain in layperson's terms what all that means? Um, well, I, it, it's best told through my personal story, which is uh, one of, I started out doing research. I came out of psychology uh, into anthropology and I was interested in doing uh, psycho psychological research into the personality development of shamanic practitioners uh, and just trying to look at what the commonalities were in their psychohistory uh, cross-culturally to see if there was anything that really distinguished uh, the personality development of those kinds of individuals who have apparently the proclivity uh, and intuition to be able to uh, do uh, indigenous healing. Uh, as time went on, I became much more and more interested in the uh, ethnobotany of what they were collecting, uh, putting together in their shamanic formulations. And um, it gradually became uh, much more of a focus for me. Uh, and as time went on, I, I really began to become interested in uh, the phytochemistry of these botanicals. Uh, what what they offered in terms of healing and um, began to collect a database of botanicals, uh, formulations, the interaction of botanicals. Uh, and through time, I began to really begin to see that these compounds and these formulations may have tremendous benefit uh, for Western pharmaceutical science. And when, when was this? Uh, this was way back when. Uh, this was, uh, you know, 
in the late 70s, early 80s. I uh, did most of my postgraduate work in the 80s. Yeah, so so certainly before the current renaissance that seems to be happening right now, right now with regard to research using psychedelics, which you're certainly part of this community. Um, so, you know, want to hear what you're discovering that might offer hope to those of us worried about being predisposed to Alzheimer's and dementia? Well, um, you know, for a long time, this kind of research really fell out of favor. Um, it was very difficult to get funding, uh, you know, largely because as we, you know, as sort of widely known at this point, uh, it was sort of used as a way of politically targeting either minority communities or uh, a way to disenfranchise communities that uh, were using psychedelic compounds recreationally at that time. So the research kind of fell out of favor. I had you know, trouble being able to get uh, funding for a lot of the work that I was doing, but this psychedelic renaissance, what's happening now is people are more or less rediscovering uh, the potential of these compounds for uh, both neuropharmacology, all aspects, mental health issues uh, that include Alzheimer's. Uh, and I think, you know, the main thing, the, one of the first things you wanna talk about is what distinguishes a psychedelic compound. And uh, what distinguishes them is activity at a particular brain receptor. We have a number of different receptor complexes uh, in our brain and throughout our body. Um, one of which is they're usually described in terms of numbers and letters that uh, describe these complexes. And what distinguishes psychedelic compounds is activity at the 5-HT2A receptor. Uh, this receptor has a really significant role in both cognition and in our inflammatory response. Uh, and it is through that binding that effect uh, that these compounds almost like a key in a lock uh, gravitate to these compound to these receptor sites that uh, we begin to see some benefit or potential benefit uh, for Alzheimer's. Uh, the 5-HT2A receptor is known again for not only mediating aspects of cognition and learning, but also our, our response to inflammation. And as we we have come to understand uh, inflammation is a significant part of the pathology of Alzheimer's. So I'm gonna try and break it down in a real simplified way and, and you correct me here. Um, something like uh, the active ingredient in psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin is um, shown to be an anti-inflammatory that can help reduce uh, the the type of inflammation that uh, is known to uh, be one of the causes of Alzheimer's? Well, we know, you know, that that's what sort of points us in the, the direction of psychedelics. As it turns out, uh, their pharmacology and mechanism of action has an effect on a number of targets associated with Alzheimer's. So we know that, you know, one of the targets uh, one of the problems or in the pathology of Alzheimer's is this amyloid protein that accumulates, uh, causing uh, intertubular uh, damage, causing axonal damage, uh, and gradually, uh, over time, cell death. 
Uh, so what's interesting is that uh, besides activity at the 5-HC2A receptor, uh, psychedelics have a broad effect in other areas. And these are really sort of generally referred to in uh, research as neuroplasticity. Uh, that neuroplasticity has two forms, uh, one of which is the growth of dendrite cells, and the other is uh, production of, well, let's, let's say there's two aspects. One is the intercellular aspect, and one is the connectivity aspect both of which are elements of Alzheimer's. So at the uh, cellular pharmacology level, we see an actual increase in growth of dendritic cells in areas that in fact are areas that are kind of essential to learning and cognition, like the hippocampus, which turns out to be one of the main areas of decline in Alzheimer's. So, um, the way this is expressed is we actually see increased nerve cell growth in these areas. And, uh, you know, people may not understand that brains have some limited ability to create new nerve cells, not a tremendous uh, ability, but some ability to create new nerve cells. So we see this increased production of dendritic uh, growth throughout uh, areas that are really targeted by Alzheimer's like the hippocampus. And, um, Besides that, we see uh, a, an increase in this signaling factor uh, that also increases and improves synaptic transmission. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Uh, so that's on the cellular side and the synaptic side. But then we also see an interesting increase in a kind of connectivity in the brain. Normally, uh, we have... Uh, a, the neocortex is kind of running the way the brain operates. Uh, under the effects of psychedelics and on, you know, post-psychedelic experience, we see an increase of different parts of the brain speaking to one another in uh, an illuminated way that didn't take place previously. So all of this uh, portends potential for treatment uh, using psychedelics for Alzheimer's. Wow. Uh, certainly, uh, I'm reading a lot about some of the, the well-known psychedelic research that's going on, such as at Johns Hopkins and, you know, working with terminally ill cancer patients. You hear a lot for uh, depression, PTSD. You don't, you don't hear quite as much as Alzheimer's. And I'm wondering, are we, are we close to a psychedelic therapy? Um, being in a, um, a, a clinical study that could actually lead to FDA appro approval, how many years, decades, do you think we're away from really having hope in the larger marketplace? Well, uh, I, I would say hope is emerging. Uh, and very recently, about last year in 2020, uh, one of the first reviews of the effects of psychedelic compounds on Alzheimer's was released uh, by um, a couple of researchers from Eng England who did a, a sort of mini review of all of the research, both on microdosing and uh, the neurobiological effects of psychedelics. And it became one of the most popular articles uh, from that journal, uh, having, you know, thousands of people taking a look at it. Uh, so this 
really has, there is, is a, a real developing interest in this area. Uh, the company Eleusis uh, has also started uh, a process of looking at uh, using LSD for treatment of Alzheimer's. And Johns Hopkins uh, has now, is now taking um, clinical volunteers for a clinical study uh, using psilocybin for the treatment of Alzheimer's. So we're, we're getting close to uh, having some real clinical research on Alzheimer's that sort of directly targets it. Wow, who's the right type of uh, profile for the Johns Hopkins case study, do you know? A asking well, for a friend. <laughs> I say that, you know, it is healthy, older volunteers and they are not excluding people with mild cognitive impairment. So it's gonna be sort of a broad range from sort of healthy, older people to people with mild cognitive impairment, whether it's uh, Alzheimer's or other types of dementia. Um, very, okay. very Well, exciting. Alan, I'm sure you were thinking, like I was thinking, we're kind of close to Johns Hopkins, at least Bonnie and I are, and our other sister, um, and our mother with Alzheimer's is as well. So we were thinking, wow, could we possibly get our mother into a study like that? But she is 84 and in the mid range of Alzheimer's. So it sounds like she would not be a good candidate. Is that correct? Well, I don't know exactly what the parameters are, uh, but, you know, perhaps I can, you know, put in the chat or something like that, a link to uh, the where you, you actually request uh, an application to be a participant in the study. Uh, as far as I know, they're, they're collecting a, a broad range of volunteers for it. It's going to be an extensive study. Uh, furthermore, Eleusis is planning a phase two clinical study coming up here where they will also be looking at microdosing of LSD uh, and, and uh, uh, using that for treatment of Alzheimer's. So uh, a lot of this is encouraging because uh, we, we've come to understand that some of these effects can be achieved without uh, what is usually considered a, a large dose uh, of LSD or psilocybin, uh, but in fact are smaller doses that are subperceptual, uh, below the range of perception. So um, that, that's going to really be what constitutes the Eleusis study. That, that was my next question is in part of its overall effect, does it require having the psychoactive symptoms or experience? Can, can one derive the benefit without having to have a psychedelic trip associated with it? Well, the results are a bit mixed, but uh, on balance, they're positive. Um, what we're seeing is, um, you know, a lot of indications that it uh, low doses not only don't impair cognition, even acutely, but that they also begin to uh, have a long-term effect of improved cognition. Now, a lot of this comes from uh, self-reported studies, uh, which are problematic because there's usually not a, a placebo arm to the study. Uh, but those studies are starting to emerge that indicate based upon, uh, you know, a, a great deal of, you know, work on a broad range of subjects that microdosing does enhance uh, memory, cognition, creativity, uh, and, you know, other cognitive uh, aspects. Really interesting.
That was fascinating. I, I, that was one of my questions was what Alan just asked, especially if you're going with patients that are, have mild cognition or mid-range cognition issues, because they wouldn't necessarily, if you use our mother for an example, be able to understand what was happening, even if you told them over and over again, if they were having that kind of an effect during the treatment process. So I could see it being limited to, um, to healthier patients or patients with very mild cognition issues, just to be able to report at all or to be able to withstand um, the types of activity that was happening during the, during, during treatment. Yeah, this is super hopeful because, um, you know, if we can accomplish the kind of neuroplasticity represented by uh, some studies with a subperceptual dose, uh, then, you know, we can avoid some of the uh, more uh, adverse effects of psilocybin or LSD having to do with uh, changes in sensory experience and what you know might be referred to as hallucinations. And something that I'm thinking about as, as I listen to this, knowing your background and studying shamanistic cultures and, and other things, and, and obviously those cultures and ceremonies continue to this day, are they experiencing the same spike in uh, mental health issues in, uh, in Alzheimer's and dementia as we are in, in Western culture? Or is that tradition and sense of ceremony and how they use these drugs keeping some of our Western uh, issues at bay and uh, within their own communities? Well, in general, I, I would say just from my experience, yes, but um, that's more uh, a sort of a subjective personal anecdote. Uh, we don't have any real studies of, you know, uh, of, of Alzheimer's and in indigenous people and psychedelics, but uh, in my experience, uh, we tend to see less uh, types of dementia and Alzheimer's related issues uh, among indigenous people. Now, whether that is a result of um, their diet or physical activity or uh, the opportunity to use psychedelic drugs for treatment, nobody's really sure. Uh, but um, we tend to see less of it in indigenous groups. Wow. So you, uh, you're calling in from Oakland. What, tell us about the, the culture that's going on out there right now. It's one of the few cities where psilocybin has been decriminalized, not, not legalized, but, um, are, are you seeing, is there anything happening in the local community there that's, uh, further proof or examples of the, the hope that might be for all? Well, I mean, we're at a very early stage here, but, um, what, you know, I'm a great believer in the democratization of the use of these compounds, uh, just for issues of cognitive liberty, as well as, uh, you know, they have a long history of safe use. And I believed if, uh, you know, rolled out and administered properly, that we'll see very few uh, issues regarding safety. Uh, but what we, what we are seeing is, um, Decriminalized Nature, who's been the organization that is most active in Oakland, uh, has been, uh, you know, really working with the city council to create uh, not only decriminalization, which it should be differentiated from 
legalization. Right. So there isn't really a commercial industry. What we're just saying is, I think what Oakland is just saying is that we're going to withdraw uh, making this a, a, an enforcement priority. Uh, so as a result, there's no commercialization, but we're allowing people to use them. So uh, one of the key things I think that is also beneficial is they're allowing for what they're describing, uh, and this is one of the uh, things that decriminalized nature, nature pushed for, is ceremonial, what they describe as ceremonial or group use, where there can be uh, session, group sessions that are conducted uh, and allowing you know, a number of people to participate. Uh, those types of events are being sort of condoned and, and put within a legal framework uh, which makes it, uh, you know, uh, basically decriminalized. Suddenly, that uh, back garden of yours has a lot more, uh, a lot more appeal, and <laughs> you know, we're we're getting our vaccine soon. We'd be happy to accept uh, any invitations. Yeah. To Absolutely, <laughs> at any point, you know. I, I've been told, you know, that there are, um, there is sort of, um, you know, an you know, an opportunity to freely exchange compounds in Oakland. Uh, it, it's very unsupervised. And as a result, um, so far, there have been no problems at all. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Um, it, it's interesting because these medicines are sacred in many non-Western cultures, and it dates back thousands of years. What's the level of concern about big pharma getting this and, you know, changing it enough to get the to get a patent and, you know, changing some of these, um, you know, like, like take this pill and everything's better versus, you know, these ritualistic aspects that brought in community and, and other aspects to the, to the healing. Well, there certainly can be excesses on the, uh, commercialization, uh, pharmaceutical side. Uh, recently, um, we, we saw the passage of measure 109 in Oregon, which allows for the dis distribution. Well, it, it, what it allows for is the creation of an advisory commission, which will create a legal framework that will uh, sort of specify the rules that will allow distribution through clinical venues of these compounds. Um, what's disturbing is, in, in parallel, we see uh, a company really kind of, uh, you know, typified by Compass Pathways uh, where they are trying to patent just about everything to do with the, the clinical experience of psychedelic compounds. So we see them attempting to patent mood lighting, uh, soft furniture, uh, subdued colors, uh, a really good sound system. Uh, and this is after they tried to patent uh, psilocybin synthesis in such a way that would occupy the field and prevent, you know, nonprofit drug development companies like Usona and Be More, uh, these other nonprofit ent entities from producing uh, this medicine uh, inexpensively. Uh, their idea is that the only uh, way that these compounds can be uh, distributed is safely is through a pharmaceutical paradigm. Uh, well, all of this is a bit disturbing, and but it became even more disturbing when uh, the CEO uh, and co-founder of Compass, uh, George Goldsmith, started reaching out 
uh, to psychedelic researchers at the Oregon Health and Science University, really in an attempt to kind of drum up concern and mobilize op opposition uh, to implementing 109 in Oregon. And, you know, Compass is unequivocal about their opposition to this measure and their intent to keep psilocybin therapy within the FDA medical pharma frame only. Uh, I think this is a really disturbing trend. Uh, I think what's taking place in Oregon uh, presents a really great opportunity because we're, we're saying, you know, uh, Oregon saying essentially, we're gonna distribute these compounds, not the way we do cannabis. You're not gonna go to a dispensary and just buy them and use them yourself in an unsupervised fashion, but you're gonna uh, really take them in the context of psychotherapy and in a clinical setting uh, but it's going to be available to all adults, not simply those who have medical indications like treatment-resistant depression, and can be used for things like cognitive enhancement or possibly as a regime that protects you uh, and protects your, uh, your brain from Alzheimer's. So this broader approach I find to be you know, a, a better one uh, and more conducive to uh, the sort of the development of the industry and development of different approaches uh, that will, you know, I find the pharmaceutical approach, even though, you know, I work at a pharmaceutical company, uh, over, overly restrictive. Yeah, so we're sort of seeing the battle play out that might end up with it being fully farm, uh, big pharma, you have to you have to get a prescription under these very strict settings and guidelines or the same way we might get a, a tincture from an herbalist or go to the vitamin store. It could be something that could be potentially something we take like a vitamin in our in our future as a preventative measure. Uh, you would still take it in a supervised uh, session and you would be well supervised, uh, but it wouldn't go through a pharmaceutical process. In fact, the Oregon model sort of leapfrogs over the FDA uh, in the sense that these, these compounds, even though they are schedule one compounds will be distributed, uh, but they place them very securely in this clinical delivery model uh, where you know, you're not gonna be just taking them and getting behind the wheel of a car. You're gonna be uh, have the opportunity to be in a really nice, relaxed setting uh, with someone who's going to help you. And we find this to be one of the most important parts of the experience is the post-experience integration that takes place. Because it's one thing to have and experience these tremendous insights that these compounds can provide. It's a whole other thing to be able to integrate it uh, into a plan or a program uh, that will allow you to sustain the effects and have them uh, last for a long time. Yeah, that would be my fear almost if you did it through big pharma and got a prescription that you'd be, you could potentially be lacking that back end piece in addition to restricting it from so many people who might benefit um, and not be able to access a prescription. So, I mean, I think what you're talking about, giving it in a broader audience, but still having the, still having it be controlled in terms of delivery delivery of the actual, the, the actual medicine, as opposed to just delivery of the prescription, and then you can go pick it up and take it whenever you want. Seems like it's a, a clear, it's clear that, that you need to be able approach. to do both. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So. Uh, I would, I would agree myself. Um, you know, it, it, there's also another aspect to this and that is that, um, big pharma is very interested in producing a compound with less adverse side effects. And I think we all are, uh, but to what extent will they remove, uh, the aspect that really provides the very profound change that these compounds right. uh, actually can provide. So there's kind of a two schools of thought on this. One school of thought believes that it's just the neuropharmacology, the neuroplasticity that these compounds provide. And then there's another school of thought uh, that really suggests uh, it's the profound mystical experience that these compounds provide that really become uh, the source of change and development. Yeah, you can't cherry pick the aspects of it you need you need perhaps you need the psychoactive experience in order to show the full benefit of prevention or dare i say it even a uh even a cure do you ever see could would it uh i mean i'm sure that there's a whole host of moral and ethical issues to uh do studies on people who already have alzheimer's but could it, uh, it within a, a brain that already has Alzheimer's, could these um, drugs still have benefit at that phase? Well, I think uh, the research on microdosing uh, that's coming forward may point a way to being able to administer these compounds at a subperceptual level uh, without having people actually experience uh, the full-blown experience but uh, still be able to take advantage of the neuroplasticity component that these compounds provide. Uh, so there are increasing indications and there's a lot of interest in uh, this path forward. Wow. Do you have any anecdotes on that subject? I know clinical studies haven't been completed, but I'm just curious as to whether you've heard any stories about somebody um, with Alzheimer's undergoing treatment and coming out of it and being changed. You know, I don't have any particular anecdotes, but I, I will say this, that the, the state that psychedelic compounds put your brain in is it, the functional connectivity between different regions of the brain. That's more, uh, more like the way a, a child's brain is experiencing life without the uh, rigid framework of perception that we acquire as adults. Uh, this is more like, um, you know, when we're very open to experiences. Uh, so normally in the adult brain, uh, as I said, you know, most of brain activity is sort of directed by the neocortex and the prefrontal cortex. What we see is under the psychedelic experience, and this effect persists after the experience for up to, you know, some people say uh, weeks and some, there are indications that it takes, it continues to stay in place up to months afterwards, uh, that this increased communication between different parts of the brain that normally don't talk to each other is very reminiscent of the way uh, the brain communicates uh, when we're, we're children. So, you know, it may in fact, be beneficial for us uh, to be able to return to some extent to a, a more flexible childlike way of apprehending the world. 
I love that. Getting back to a state of play. That sounds really great to me. Well, where, um, where can we go to educate ourselves even further when it comes to this path of research for, for Alzheimer's? What, what's a good, where should our antennas be and what should we be paying attention to? Well, I would say, first of all, um, every person who's very interested in this should read uh, this article that came out in uh, Frontiers in Synaptic Neuroscience. Uh, it's the title of the article is Psychedelics as a Treatment for Alzheimer's Disease Dementia. Uh, the authors are uh, Simon Andrew Van Jones and Allison O'Kelly. Um, they come out of uh, UK-based Cornwall Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, Great. We'll put this link in the, the show notes as well. Yeah, both of them are... Um, researchers in uh, geriatric psychiatry and are specialists in, in Alzheimer's research. Uh, this is a great introduction to how psychedelics uh, may help Alzheimer's. Uh, another thing that might be of interest is an interview that took place with, I believe it's uh, Albert uh, Rameau, who's doing the research at um, at uh, Johns Hopkins, the new study that's going to be taking place on Alzheimer's coming up, uh, and the one that will have the broad clinical population that will include people uh, with uh, cognitive impairment. Uh, this uh, interview, and I'll, I'll provide the link to it, uh, is very instructive as well. It's great. Thank you. Well, Dell, it when you when you look at the freight train that we're on with mental health, Alzheimer's and dementia, 50, 50 million, um, a number that continues to, to increase. It's, it's really exciting to sit with someone that's on the frontier of, of something that holds the promise of something that that could really deliver hope to, to so many millions of people. So really appreciate you taking the time to be on Alls in the Fam with us and We'll have to come out and visit. Absolutely, my pleasure. And I invite you guys to come out and uh, visit me at my lab where uh, I'm doing some work. I'd love to show you around and, and talk about some more of the work that we're doing. I would like Thank that. You, yeah, that was amazing. Thank you so much. This was a fantastic. So much more information than we knew was out there. And so exciting to hear what you're doing. And we really appreciate appreciate the research that you did for to tell us about other things that are going on. So it's really appreciate that. Well, well just briefly, I'll tell you that uh, at IO Biosciences, uh, where I'm chief science officer, uh, our approach is kind of a traditional pharma approach. We're looking at you know some of these compounds that are out there like LSD and psilocybin, and we're looking at from a traditional pharma perspective how can we make the next generation of compounds which are more targeted for efficacy, which are having an even better safety profile and have even less adverse side effects. So to that end, we're about to begin preclinical work on a psychedelic compound that uh, has a better safety profile than psilocybin and does uh, in fact reduce one of the major adverse side effects uh, the challenging experience. A lot of people uh, 
you know, at the onset of the effects of these compounds experience fear or panic or anxiety as a result of the changes in perception and really the changes in how, really more the, the way we define ourselves suddenly becomes uh, very permeable under these experiences. And that can be disconcerting. Uh, the compound we're working on, uh, we hope will um, provide a much more euphoric, less dysphoric type of experience and reduce some of the, the challenging experiences that people have. Well, and that was actually going to be my question about use, uh, if you're using these with someone with dementia and they started to have those fear reactions in a psychedelic experience, how you would be able to, it would just be, I couldn't wrap my arms around how that would come back. Um, because they don't know from minute to minute what's causing it and where they are and what's happening. So if you have a compound that reduces that adverse side effect, it would really make it so much more usable for, in that population. Well, that, that's absolutely the case. What we look for, uh, we're trying to target a number of aspects of the experience. One is uh, the duration. Uh, that the was the other thing that I had in there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Is the six, duration. Yeah. Six to 10 hours. We hope our compound will provide an experience that's more in the three to four hour range. One, uh, we use less clinical resources. Someone doesn't have to attend to you for uh, that length of time. And the other is it becomes more accessible to riskier clinical populations. Uh, usually uh, we avoid uh, you know, giving psychedelic compounds to either borderline personality or schizophrenics. And as you would say it would be extremely disconcerting for an old person who was necessarily uh, beginning the minor stages of either dementia or, or Alzheimer's. So uh, by limiting the length of the experience, reducing the challenging aspect, we hope to make it available, more available to uh, riskier populations. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think those are two really critical areas. Del Potter, thank you so much for, for being on. Great to see you, man. Thanks for listening to Alls in the Fam. In the fight against Alzheimer's and dementia, we are all family. Find us at Alls in the Fam on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and on our website, allsinthefampodcast.com. We appreciate you clicking that subscribe button on Apple, Google, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast catcher may be. Alzheimer's sucks, but we are in it together. We are Alls in the Family. Talk soon.